The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. My name is James Birch, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio, where he says only the, the traditional Latin Mass. Hello, Father. Good to have you with us. Hello, Jim. Uh, tonight, we are going to continue to answer some viewer questions, and uh, we have some questions that are, are related to each other. And tonight, they involve um, what uh, the Norvis Ordo Church... Um, has done as to why it appeals to people, why people haven't seen the errors in it, and also um, some questions about uh, whether a set of a contest's uh, priests are validly ordained or not. So our first question tonight, Father, is why is it that even though a Norvis Ordo, um, the religion, is riddled, with, is riddled with errors and a clear Protestant liturgy, uh, it is, and still is, so embraced by the majority and only rejected by a very few. Why is it that lay people and clerics have no concrete answer for its forced implementation other than it was approved by the popes? Well, Jim, I think that's the answer why it is accepted, why it has become accepted. Uh, at first, you know, there was a, a general reaction against a Novus Ordo, a new order, you know, um, but uh, as it turned out, um, the opposition was pretty much silenced right, and marginalized and then gradually acquiesced because they found it was a lot easier. You know, there are many people who left the Catholic Church and even abandoned the faith over the Novus Ordo. Uh, they've been told uh, for 70 years that this is the right way and that's the wrong way. And then all of a sudden it seemed that the right and wrong had been reversed. <clears throat> that now what had been condemned before was acceptable, and what had been approved before and even, even mandated before, that was no longer in force. And so there were a lot of folks who lost, lost faith, unfortunately, because uh, they thought that what they had been told before with such certitude was now at least doubtful uh, or downright wrong. And so they said, well, how can a church that Christ founded um, actually reverse itself uh, so dramatically? And, uh, of course, it didn't occur to them, well, maybe, maybe the church herself has been infiltrated, and uh, now the, the hijackers of the church's institutions are doing this to the church, and the church is the victim, not the perpetrator of this, of this uh, well, spiritual crime that it is. And, um, but, but so many uh, also thought, well, this is coming from the church, it's coming from the hierarchy, <clears throat> and if this is coming from the church, it must be okay. Even though I'm uncomfortable with it, even though I don't like it, uh, even though I'm suspicious of whether it's even Catholic, if it's coming from the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, it must be okay, and I have to simply suppress my qualms of conscience and go along with it. Uh, I mentioned uh, a gentleman here in Cincinnati who was doing just that for a while. Uh, he found the Novus Ordo to be not only offensive, but suspect, but he, he believed that it must be coming from the hierarchy of the church. And that as a good Catholic, he had to go along with it. And so he tried to get involved and, and, and do as many things as he could to be helpful, including becoming a so-called uh, Eucharistic minister, extraordinary minister of the Eucharist. Uh, and that lasted until he found them pouring the uh, chalices down the drain uh, in the... Uh, the, the, the sacristy sink after the liturgy. And he, he realized then, uh, as though the scales fell from his eyes like St. Paul, you know, in the Acts of the Apostles, he saw clearly that this was not right. And so he never went back to the Novus Ordo, and he found the traditional faith, the traditional mass again, and he held to it until uh, the day he died, God rest his soul. But uh, until somebody sees something really shocking like that, that just enables them to see right through uh, the Novus Ordo, to see it for what it really is, 
they're living in kind of a, a sort of a fantasy land where they're suppressing their doubts or suppressing their objections or suppressing what they know in favor of, uh, of this because they feel like they're caught in a dilemma. Uh, that they say the authority of the church comes from Christ, they say, and therefore it must be right and it cannot command things that are evil. And so the Novus Ordo must be okay. It must be Catholic. And even if there are problems with it, uh, we have to go along with it and support it. It's the, we have no choice. It's the only way to be faithful. Uh, they're wrong in that, but that's what they tell themselves. So oddly enough, I mean, there, there's, there are a lot of people out there who think it, we have to do this to be Catholic, to accept these non-Catholic things. We have to go along with a new order of religion in order to remain Catholic, they think. It's, it's, a, it's a contradiction. But these people are, are living a contradiction of the Novus Ordo uh, in opposition to the traditional, but they're following the Novus Ordo because they believe they have to be Catholic, and the only way to be Catholic is to follow uh, the Vatican, whatever voice comes out of the Vatican. You did a very nice job in our last episode discussing uh, Bishop Sheen and his uh, mm -hmm. crisis of conscience with the idea that he had to um, consider the obedience that he owed versus what was being told to him about these changes that were being made and that, that, that crisis that he went through. And to me, the lay people would have gone through much the same crises in that their confessors, the people they're going mm -hmm. to to get spiritual advice, are now telling them That's these right. things that contradict what they, they mm. maybe told them last week. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's true. I mean, the, the lay people would have gone to the priests, and the priests would have told them, uh, well, this is the way it is now, and this is fine, and this is good. They came to the modernist line, we're, we're you know, returning to primitive Christianity or whatever else. But whatever it is, even the priests who didn't necessarily like it said, well, we have to stay within the structure. You know, we have to stay within the structure of the diocese. We have to follow the bishop. The bishop, you know, is with the, the Holy Father, and we have to follow that. And often they didn't look any more deeply into it than that. Um, so, you know, for them it, it became a matter of uh, just submission, submitting to um, the, the, the hierarchy of the church and the voice of authority. Uh, of course... The problem there is that uh, we were told that uh, the authority could be infiltrated, could be abused, could misguide. Um, I mean, if I, if I can put it this way, um, people were actually caught between uh, the idea of the church, the authority of the church hierarchy being infallible. You have the extraordinary magisterium of the church, uh, papal pronouncements, uh, papal ratification of, uh, ext uh, of uh, ecumenical councils. You have a pope speaking ex cathedra. That's an infallible voice. Um, and you have the ordinary magisterium of the church throughout the ages. Uh, not just as it exists in the world today, all the bishops, all the hierarchies throughout the world teaching the faith. Um, but you also have the charism of indefectibility that the church herself cannot change substantially, cannot become a different church uh, with a different religion, a different faith, a different moral code. The church cannot undergo any substantial change that would change her into something substantially other than what Christ established her to be. So you have the infallibility of the hierarchy of the church, which protects the, the, the church in its extraordinary magisterium or universal ordinary magisterium, and magisterium from contradicting the true faith, and from teaching error. And then you have the indefectibility of the church, a charism, which means the church cannot undergo any substantial change. And you see these two seem to be in opposition with each other, that we have this hierarchy now that is teaching things that apparently are changing the very character of the church. They're changing the nature of the mass. They're changing the nature of the sacraments. Uh, they're changing, uh, you know, matters of faith uh, that would make the Catholic Church no longer the Catholic Church. 
as it has existed historically and traditionally. Now take the example of, uh, of Francis right now, okay? Just by way of example. Francis is going to go to Germany to celebrate the Protestant Reformation. He's going to go to Germany to celebrate what Luther has done. And the Catholic Church has always taught that Luther has taken millions of people away from the true faith, out of the true church, to follow him, a heresiarch, that he has falsified the teachings of Jesus Christ, that this is one of the greatest catastrophes in the history of Christianity, perhaps second only to that of Arianism, the Arian heresy. And Francis is going to go and celebrate this. And John Paul II, before him, complimented Luther, talking about what a deeply religious man he was. And uh, now, this is scandalous. That's the very least you can say. It is a scandal. But for a pope... Uh, this is a pope of the Novus Ordo. I mean, he's avowedly the pope of the new order, okay? He has especially made that point, that he is the pope of the new order <laughs> and uh, wants to be thought of as the pope of the new order. And he uh, is going to bring Vatican II to its ultimate conclusion. This is his, going to be his great achievement. He's going to celebrate a catastrophe in the, minds of the, in the eyes of the church a catastrophe for Christianity, a catastrophe for our Lord, right? And uh, not only is that scandalous, but one, one would have to argue that if he is doing this, he's certainly favoring heresy, right? Of course, I mean, he's done this so many times now, it's getting so redundant, it's getting almost ho-hum listening to this man. Uh, you know, he talks about, again, uh, the, the Jewish folks, the Jewish people not having to go through Christ to be saved, I mean, that's a blatant heresy. Um, so this is, this is horribly scandalous. Um, and, um, and you see the Catholic people then witness this, and what are they to think? Um, was the church wrong before in opposing Luther? Was Luther right and the church wrong? That appears what he's saying, right? Because the church condemned Luther and what he did. They didn't celebrate it. When he's going to celebrate it, it appears that he's vindicating it. And actually, um, he's indicting the church at the time for having opposed Luther. Uh, what, what are the Catholic people supposed to make of that? No wonder they lose faith. No wonder they're losing the whole idea of what it is to be a Catholic and just begin to think in terms of, well... We're one big amorphous group of Christian people, um, and we're all sort of in this large, under this big tent church, uh, with all these different beliefs, diversity, but we all have some vague general idea that Christ is somehow the Savior and the Son of God, literally or figuratively, and uh, what unites us all is that somehow we all have, um, well, we, we, we use the name Jesus, and uh, we call him Christ, uh, whatever that means to each individual. What's left? What is left of Christianity, after all this? And um, then, then you get the, it goes so far, that affects even the modern uh, Novus Ordo Catholics who are going to the traditional Mass. It even affects them in a very profound way. I mean, you have the indult Mass that John Paul II uh, introduced, the 1962 Latin Mass, which was allowed under certain circumstances in the Novus Ordo parishes, right? On a limited basis, the Novus Ordo Catholics then had access to a Latin Mass. And then Benedict, you know, expanded that into Samorum Pontificum. And, uh, but here's the problem with all that. That is not the answer. That's quite, an, that's a part of the same problem, actually. It, it just expands the problem. Uh, because it feeds this idea of the modernist, that the church is sort of this mass of all these different rites and ceremonies, including, you know, a 1962 Latin Mass. It's all part of this big church idea. 
and it fits in with all this idea. We have all these different flavors of religion. You choose the flavor you like, but it's all part of the same religion. It's all part of the same Christianity. It's all part of under the big tent of our ecumenical religion we're establishing here. Uh, so a, a pope can go and, and celebrate Luther and what Luther did. At the same time, in the same church, under that same pope, we have a, a 1962 Latin Mass that people can go to, and we have a Hans Kuhn who doesn't even believe in the divinity of Christ. But they're all under that big tent together. We can give communion to Brother Roger of Taizé, who's not a Catholic, do it very publicly at the funeral of John Paul II. Benedict XVI did that when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger. And just recently, there was a group of Protestants, including a Lutheran bishop, who were at the Vatican, and they were attending a, a Vatican uh, a, a liturgy, one of their Novus Ordo Masses there. And uh, the Lutherans all dutifully put their hands over their their hands over their uh, across their breasts, indicating they were not receiving because they would not they were not supposed to receive. But at instructions from Francis, the Novus Ordo priests at this Novus Ordo Eucharistic meal came and gave them all communion, in spite of the fact that they were saying we're not receiving. So it was kind of forced on them in a way, but just to show that we're all one. What does communion mean? We're all one, right? And uh, so one doesn't need to be one in faith. One doesn't need to be one in morality. One doesn't need to be one in the same religion, right? Uh, but we're all one in some vague, modernist way. Even the Novus Ordo Catholics who are going to the Latin indult mass are buying into that. And they're basically saying, yes, we believe that too. We have the same concept of the church that all the rest of the modernists have. It's a big tent with all these different religions, and it's like a mall. It's like a religion mall, you know? Uh, you go and you shop in various places and get the things you want. You pick out what you like. It's like a big smorgasbord, a buffet, you know? Everybody takes what he wants, feeds from what he wants, gluts himself, whatever he likes. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter of taste. It's not a matter of principle. It's not a matter of faith. Um, Catholics, at first, did not, did not accept that. But they have learned to accept it because uh, it's so much easier fits a modern lifestyle, they bought into it now. And once they bought into that, uh, once they got a taste of that, it's very hard to, uh, to bring them back to, uh, you know, even, even understand the most fundamental Catholic principles of, um, of a true faith, a one, one true faith, uh, one true church. Um, they, they've lost that concept entirely. The, the next question that we have actually is a good follow-up um, to what you're saying, Father, because the question is, is when individuals begin to deeply embrace tradition and the traditionalist movement, um, and even go to the extent of getting information outside the structures of the, the, the visible Norvis Ordo Church, how can we be sure that we're not being led astray by Satan, the father of lies, whose mission is to separate souls from the church? Well, uh, first of all, if our motiv motivation is to remain Catholic by following Catholic tradition, <clears throat> uh, the motivation cannot be wrong, uh, if that is the motivation, okay? Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ established his church, right? He promised to send the Holy Ghost to guide the church. He said, in making that promise, that the Holy Ghost would not come to teach us any new doctrines, um, but would bring to our minds, the minds of the apostles, all the things that Christ himself had taught them. So that is what tradition is. It's simply a following what Christ taught and the church being guided by the Holy Ghost to be faithful to our Lord. The church that he established as he established it. That is what every Catholic has to intend. I mean, you can't be Catholic if you don't have that intention, right? Right. 
Now, it's true that saying it, intending it, and then doing it, well, those are different things. Because uh, it's, it's very fine and good and right and Catholic to say, I'm going to remain faithful to the faith as Christ uh, revealed it, and as the apostles taught it, I'm going to follow Catholic morality, and I'm going to do that by following Catholic tradition, which is the guidance of the Holy Ghost in the Church throughout the ages. But then it's easy to compromise that and to say, well, I'm going to be traditional in some things, but not in others. I'm going to, uh, I think I mentioned this before, you know, uh, following Catholic tradition <coughs> comes down, in my mind, at least to three things, and that is, there are things that the Church has always taught must always be done. <clears throat> if one is to be Catholic, these are the things the Church says are necessary to be Catholic, always and everywhere. And the, the traditional Catholic has to say, I'm going to obey those and follow those. And uh, the Church has also said there are certain things which must never be done that are always contrary to Catholic tradition. And no Catholic can ever, under pre any pretext whatsoever, justify them. They're always wrong. They're always antithetical to being Catholic. Never do them. And the traditional Catholic must say, I will never do those things. You know? and, the, uh, and, then, and then follow through. You know, not just say it, but actually apply it. And then thirdly, there are things that the Church has approved of in times of crisis and said not only can they be done legitimately, but in some cases even must be done uh, in order to, again, follow Catholic tradition. There you need to know the Church's history and how she has responded to, let's say, the Arian heresy, the Donatist heresy, um, the uh, Macedonianism and, and uh, other, other heresies uh, that the Church has found in times of crisis, to a time of Arianism and so on. The Church has shown us by her example sacred tradition. The, the Holy Ghost guided the Church through these things, and we see how she reacted to these things, what she condemned, and what she approved. Uh, for example, uh, I mentioned uh, at one point the case of Honorius I, a true Pope. No one has ever questioned whether he was truly the Pope or not. Um, but a generation after he died, he was excommunicated from the church and condemned as a heretic because his action or inaction favored the monothelite heresy, a heresy that essentially would have annulled the humanity of our Lord, denied true humanity to our Lord, uh, by basically uh, nullifying the human will in him and therefore taking away from him an essential part of human nature. You know? Very serious business, because that would have completely undermined the whole idea of the redemption, and the incarnation. So um, it was not merely an academic matter, like, or something theoretical and hypothetical. I mean, this is very, very meat and potatoes, down to earth. Did the redemption occur? Did the incarnation occur? Uh, question. So um, Honorius failed to condemn the error. And even silenced those who would oppose the error. The Catholics, or the true faith, he silenced them. And his command was backed up by an edict from the emperor, uh, which made it a crime to speak out against the heresy. And what did faithful Catholics do? They defied the, the Pope, they defied the order of Honorius, um, and they defied the emperor. In many cases, they paid a very heavy price for it. Um, but they spoke up uh, boldly against the heresy, and they proclaimed the true faith. The church, subsequent to that, judged this entire matter, canonized those who led the way, even though they were defying the, the pope, a direct order from the pope, they were canonized. Sophronius, Maximus the Confessor, and so on. The church has them in the calendar of, of her saints to this day, and Honorius the Pope was anathematized by this. Again, we see cases like that. We see this is how the Church judges these things, and this is how we must judge these things now, and this sets the pattern for how we must conduct ourselves now as true traditional Catholics. <clears throat> um, is it possible that we can be led astray? Well, if we allow ourselves to be. For example, uh, I'll give you another example here that might illustrate what you're making. 
there are those who have followed the Took line of clergy. Okay, they come from uh, Archbishop Pierre Martin de Lintuk, okay, the Vietnamese bishop. He was a real Catholic bishop, okay? And, um, but he went off the beam. Uh, he was allowed to come to Vatican II, even though, uh, well, he, he, he came to Vatican II, took part in Vatican II, and while he was at Vatican II, his country fell to communism. His brother was assassinated, DM, and um, he could not go back to now a communist Vietnam. So he um, found himself in exile, and he began to do some very, very, very peculiar things. I won't go into detail here, but one of the most horrific things he did was consecrate non-Catholics as bishops. That's a sacrilege. He would have known it's a sacrilege. It was condemned uh, by Pope Pius XII, through the Holy Office, a decree that made it not only a, a, a sin, but made it a crime against the Church, for which one is automatically, immediately, ipso facto, excommunicated from the Church in the most severe possible way. And excommunication most specially reserved to the Holy See. That's the most serious kind of excommunication, automatic excommunication that the Church can have. It doesn't even have to wait for a, a decree. You do this, and this is the consequence. It's automatic, okay? Uh, and only the Holy See can lift the excommunication. That's how grave a crime this is, to do such a thing. Archbishop Took had a doctorate in canon law. He was from Vietnam. It was to the bishops of China that, uh, in response to what the, bishop, the communist bishops of China were doing and consecrating non-Catholics, that, um, that because they'd gone over to the national church of uh, Mao Zedong's communists, and um, uh, so they were consecrating bishops for the basically the communist Catholic Church of China, right? Essentially. Um, now, Archbishop Took would have been well aware of that, okay? Um, but he wound, up, he wound up committing this crime. And so the question arose well, was he responsible for what he did or was he not? Was he in his, in his right mind or was he not? Did he have his mental faculties about him or did he not? If he didn't have his mental faculties about him and he could excuse him on those grounds, then you have the question, well, was he what he did valid? You know, did he validly administer the sacrament? If he if he did have his mental competence and he understood what he was doing or had no reason not to, you know, then we could say, well, yes, he could have validly consecrated uh, bishops, even non-Catholics, but then he would have been guilty of this terrible crime. And would have been automatically communicated by the church. <clears throat> As Pope Pius XII explained in a later encyclical in 1958, at the very end of his reign, actually, just before his death, that his excommunication that he decreed there for this crime applied to those who did this contra omnifas against all practice of the church. Um, that would not apply to traditional bishops consecrating traditional bishops today, because there are precedents for that that the Church has approved. But there are no precedents for the Church having approved a Catholic bishop consecrating a non-Catholic, ever. Uh, that has always been condemned. The point being, one can say, yes, we're going to be traditional, and yes, we're going to follow the tradition of the Church, and then turn around and go contrary completely contrary to Catholic tradition. Can the devil use that as a trap for traditional Catholics? He certainly can. We have to be aware of that. What's involved here? What's important? Honesty. We just have to be honest about it. And if we say we're going to be traditional, we have to be traditional. And we can't say, except in this, or except in that. In that case, I find it advantageous to just ignore Catholic tradition and do something that is totally condemned by Catholic tradition just to get ahead for the sake of saving Catholic tradition. There are people who are actually doing that and still calling themselves traditional Catholics. They're not. Um, but unfortunately, the devil can dilute them. Uh, there are those who would say to you, oh, well, we can't accept that. If that's true, look at all those people now who are following the Took bishops and Took priests and and, and they would be deluded, and they would be wrong, and they would not really be traditional Catholic. They'd be on the wrong path. path that's impossible. God would never allow that. And I would say, no, no, wait a minute. 
God allowed a Vatican too. He allowed all of that to happen to the church. With all those hundreds of millions of people being deluded by a Novus Ordo and following it, for the sake of convenience, right? Ease of religion, whatever other arguments they use. And now you who recognize that, that that has happened, you are now trying to use the same argument that the Novus Ordo people use to say, oh, this couldn't possibly be true, to justify what is clearly contrary to Catholic tradition, um, and say it's impossible that God would allow this. You're not being honest with yourself, I'd say. Well, and you've spoken, too, about <clears throat> the idea that uh, there's almost a... When, when someone says that, well, God would not allow this to happen because these, these people are following, whether it's the Tooks or, or the Norvis Ordo, that those people are, 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 have been condemned by God to, uh, to be damned. It's, it's almost what people are, are saying then. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, especially uh, the, the lay people, if, if they are, are, are really trying to do the right thing, mm -hmm. then, then we can't make that judgment about them then either, can we? Well, um, no, I, no, we can't. I mean, I, I'm not their judge. Right. I mean, I, I can say when something is contrary to Catholic tradition, I'm convinced of that, I think I'd prove it, okay? But I can't say that everybody who's following that line is conscious, aware, and, and, and uh, let's say formally doing something that he knows is contrary to Catholic faith, Catholic tradition, and that he's necessarily in the state of mortal sin. I can't say that. And I never would say that. I mean, I could start from the, from the point of view that those who are following this and following two priests, I'm just assuming automatically that they're in good faith. Um, and that they're just misled. But the point is, when they are no longer misled, when they see the truth, that's when they have to make a decision to do what's convenient or do what's right. Okay? Um... And we still, we find people today who've been following with the Took, the Took clergy for some time now, when they realize what's involved and how the origin of this whole Took line is, is, is sounded on a basis that is contrary to Catholic tradition and condemned by Catholic tradition. Many of them, they, they, they give it up. They say, well, then I can't follow that. And what that shows is they were of goodwill all the time. They had the best of intentions. They were doing what they believed was the right thing as long as they believed it was the right thing. But uh, when they come to realize it's not, then they, then they realize that they have to give it up and, and do what they know now is right. Um, so my, my default uh, way of thinking is that you know, you've got good people who really want to be traditional Catholics and want to be faithful to Catholic tradition and just don't really understand uh, all the ramifications of what they're getting into with the Took line. And what we try to enable them to understand, well, you cannot save Catholic tradition, quote-unquote, and you can't be faithful to Catholic tradition by getting involved in something that it is, at its very outset uh, defied Catholic tradition, did something that was condemned by all Catholic tradition. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, you might as well say, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I, we need traditional Catholic bishops, so I'm going to go get, I'm going to become a traditional Catholic bishop. And you say to them, well, how are you going to just become a traditional Catholic bishop? I say, well, I'm, I'm going to go to my local uh, Greek Orthodox church and get in good and get myself consecrated a bishop there by the Greek Orthodox schismatics so that when I'm consecrated, I can come back and be a traditional bishop. And you say, well, you can't do that. That is totally contrary to all Catholic tradition. You know, the church has always condemned that. And they say, well, that's okay. You know, this is my plan. Well, I mean, no more than that could you justify what Archbishop took then. Some people might see the one point, but not see the other. Well, God is their judge, you know, and our, our job, our responsibility is just to point out to them what we know the truth is and, and, and pray for them that they can accept it. I'm going to skip ahead in the questions here because I think this next one applies a little bit to what, what you were saying there. And that uh, The question is... <clears throat> Then, if it's if what you're saying in the, with the traditionalists uh, holding to the true faith, 
uh, is true, what holds them back from electing a pope? Well, they have they don't have the authority to do so. You know? I mean, you're talking about traditional Catholic lay people in general? Or? No, no, no. The, the the movement, the the priests, the bishops who have. Uh, I think the the question would would be in general why why uh, if the new uh, order is not really Catholicism, why don't why doesn't the uh, traditional church elect a pope and move in that direction? Well, I, I think for the same reason that. Um, <clears throat> As it's, a, I'm convinced absolutely that, that Francis is not the Pope. That doesn't make me the Pope. So even in saying that I'm convinced he's not the Pope, I cannot say, okay, I'm making a dogma. He's not the Pope. Everybody has to agree with me. Okay, and I don't have the authority. Well, the, the traditional Catholics in the world are not automatically endowed with the authority of electing a Pope by the very fact that what's going on in the Novus Ordo was wrong and the Church has been hijacked by these modernists. Actually, the Masons already declared that that was their intention back in the early 1800s to infiltrate the church, get control of the papacy by working their way up through the ranks of the clergy into the College of Cardinals and electing a man who would be basically, in belief, a good Mason. Whether he belonged to the Masons formally was irrelevant to them. I can't say that. Uh, Nubius, who was the writer of the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, which outlined this plan for the Masons, said it'd be best if he weren't a Mason that we elected. We can get Masons into the church, get them into the episcopacy, get them uh, into the College of Cardinals, elect someone as the supreme pontiff, and yet we don't want him necessarily to be a Mason because if he did, he'd be in on the plot and he could immediately convert and expose it all and condemn it. Ironically enough, not long after Nubius had written that for the Masons of Italy, they did apparently succeed in apparently electing a man who was very, very favorable to the Masons. So much so that when um, Mastai Ferretti became Pope Pius IX, it was rumored that he was a Mason because he was so favorable to them. And uh, it took two years of the papacy and the assassination of a, of a dear friend of him, of his, de Rossi, uh, by the Masons to open his eyes and make him realize, these are the enemies of Christ, these are enemies of the church. How can I befriend the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the church? I mean, you look at Francis and you know, the enemies of the church all love him. And that should give people pause who love the church and make them and love Christ. Say, why do all the enemies of the church, the traditional enemies of the church, love him and applaud him? It should at least make them hesitate a bit to start to be applauding along with them. But um, in any case, um, Pius IX was not a Mason, but he he appeared to be, and in his policies initially, he was very favorable to them. They must have felt that they had succeeded uh, more rapidly than they ever dreamed possible. Because we're talking about less than a, a single generation after this direction came out from the Masonic Lodges of Italy, the, from, the, from the Alta Vendita, uh, the Carbonari, <clears throat> less than a generation uh, after that direction came out, they had, suddenly they had Mastai already elected. And the Masons must have thought that they arrived in their promised land, you know. Um, but then he turned on them because he saw what was happening. It showed the, the cleverness of Nubius in formulating this plan ahead of time, saying, let's not elect a Mason because he would know too much and he could turn on us. It turned out that that was sort of prophetic with Pius IX, you know. So, you know, we're not saying that uh, John the 23rd, uh, Paul the 6th, uh, John Paul the 2nd, that they were Masons, okay? Uh, although that wouldn't be out of the question because John the 23rd, Paul the 6th in particular, were honored and beloved and embraced by the Masons, and praised by them, lionized by them. Uh, and they loved it. They basked in this, this applaud, applause of the world, especially the Masonic world. Um, but uh, the uh, 
the fact that you have um, this 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 plan in in place to gain control of the church through uh, through the the um, papacy by seizing control of the papacy uh, should make the Catholic people understand better what what is happening and make them realize that the voice that is speaking there. If it doesn't sound like the voice of, of Catholicism throughout the ages, it's not. It's another voice, an alien voice. It's not the voice of the shepherd. Our Lord said, uh, you know, my sheep know my voice. I know mine and mine know me. You know? And when we have what's coming out of the Vatican now, coming out, we realize this is not what the church has always taught. This is not the voice of Christ. The very fact that we recognize that, though, the very fact that we recognize that does not automatically mean that we should just get a bunch of traditional, avowedly traditional Catholics together and say, well, now we must have the authority to go ahead and elect a, elect a victor of Christ. Um, because uh, we, don't have, we don't have that authority. If you look back again, I, I, I would say this, okay. If you look back in Catholic tradition, here's what you'd have to do. You have to look back in Catholic tradition, which is what we're following, and say, where is there precedence in Catholic tradition that would allow us to do that, to elect a pope? And the answer is nowhere. Even when um, there was such confusion reigning in the history of the church as there were three uh, reputed popes, okay, uh, during the great Western schism, right? Uh, when there was supposedly a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon and finally a pope in Pisa. And we know that that was impossible, but the Catholic people were so confused over what happened there. Um, and these were all done by cardinals. Nobody ever rose up and said, well, I guess it's up to us now to take over and elect somebody of our own choosing. Um, when there were anti-popes, right? Uh, when popes were imprisoned, when popes were wrong uh, about the faith, uh, no one proposed traditionally such that it was ever approved by the church subsequently, saying, well, we're going to take it upon ourselves to elect a pope of our own. Again, that is something that has always been condemned by the church. It's something we must never do. Um, in fact, this is one of the arguments used against the state of Encounter's position. You know, when you, when you hear people saying, I don't believe Francis is the Pope. He can't be the Pope. How is it possible he can be the Pope? How can he be the Pope of a Novus Ordo and the Pope of the Catholic faith at the same time? How can he reject Catholic tradition and be the Pope of the Catholic Church at the same time? I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. Okay, you hear people say that. And uh, some have even gone so far as to cross the line and become dogmatic, say the Countess, and say... He's not the Pope. I'm convinced he's not the Pope, and nobody can be convinced he, he is, because I say he isn't. And because I'm absolutely convinced that he isn't the Pope, everybody has to agree that he is not the Pope. And because I'm convinced he's not the Pope, if you think he is, you're not Catholic. Because you disagree with me. Um, that's dogmatic state of accountism. That is, that's not right. Absolutely not right. Okay? Um, again, it gets back to the fact that even if you're right that he's not the Pope, it doesn't make you the Pope, and you can't lay down dogmas for all the consciences of all the Catholic people in the world to agree with you just because you've reached that conclusion. And you can't anathematize them all because they see it differently. <clears throat> you can say it's wrong for them to follow the Novus Ordo, and they should be following the traditional faith, but on this particular point, you don't have the right to make a dogma out of your, your personal position on the matter. Um, but you can understand why people take that position. Because uh, even those who rail against state of and who rail against state of uh, those who condemn it, you know, and, and use it as some kind of a big bad word uh, to say, oh, they're state of you know, they've got cooties, you can't go near them, you can't touch them. They have to realize that the reason why people are state of is because of what they're doing. It's because of what Francis is doing. 
He's creating this terrible scandal. It's because of what Benedict has done, what, what, what John Paul II has done, what Paul VI has done, what John XXIII has done. That's why these people are sated vicultists. They're scandalized by what these men have done. They're just reacting to what these men are doing and saying, that's all. And so those who are making a, a big hullabaloo about, oh, sedevacantism, sedevacantism, we can't go to here, sedevacantism, that's bad. They have to accept the fact that their, their popes of the new order are scandalizing people into that position. And they have no defense for that. How can they defend them? If they're going to be scandalized by the fact that their people are sedevacantists, they should be a thousand times more scandalized why they become sedevacantists. They should be a thousand more scandalized as what their Pope Francis's are doing to scandalize the world. That's the real scandal, Jim. Now, I'm, I'm going to try from a, a lay perspective to maybe lay out the different um, positions that, I guess, traditional Catholics could have on, on the Pope. And uh, maybe ask your opinion about each one. You, you might be able to just talk about them quickly, and it seems to me like it, it wouldn't be too difficult. So you could um, potentially believe that the Pope is truly is the Pope, and but what he is decreeing is uh, not Catholics. So you're not going to follow it. You could be um, take the opinion that you're really just not sure. You, you can't decide whether he is the Pope, whether he's not the Pope. But what he's decreeing definitely is not okay, so you're just going to follow Catholic tradition. You could take the set of a contest position of, I don't believe that the chair of Peter is empty, um, without saying that everyone else has to believe that. And then you could take the final position that you were talking about, which is the chair of Peter is empty. That is the only way that you can uh, believe, and otherwise you're, you're not a traditional Catholic. So maybe if you could just briefly touch upon those, those four positions, because it seems to me like those are the main positions that a lot of traditionalists take. Um, and I think a lot of our viewers have questions about what, what each one means. Um, a lot of the questions tend to uh, come from that, there's a little confusion about that. Right, and I think uh, actually it's, it's good to go through those possibilities because they can be kind of a trap. They get traditional Catholics in there, uh, kind of bickering with each other about things, fighting with each other about things. And uh, these are things that kind of exceed their competence. We can discuss these things rationally. And it's very hard to discuss them purely rationally without the emotions getting involved. Um, but in the end, we have to, we have to realize that um, whatever the answer to the question is, whether he's a pope or the not, or not a pope, uh, I know for a fact I'm not the pope. And I can't pretend to be in saying, okay, I can decide this question for all the Catholics in the world and whatever I decide, everybody has to agree with. If not, they're anathema. We have to, so right away, I think we have to eliminate the dogmatic city of the countess position. Uh, they have no right to be dogmatic about their position, as far as I'm concerned, okay? Since so they would anathematize anybody who doesn't agree with them. They can have the most logical argument in the world that I would completely agree with. And I may I come to the exact same conclusion that they do, perhaps even more firmly than they do. But they are not popes, neither am I, and we cannot dogmatize our logical conclusions. We can accuse people of being illogical, but we cannot accuse them of being heretics or uh, heretical or, or uh, anathematize them because they don't agree with us in mm -hmm. our position. Um, there are those, on the other hand, who say, well, he is the pope, and you do have to, you have to agree that, he, that he's the pope, but he's teaching bad things. Telling us to do bad things. So we have to uh, do the, the good things he's saying and not do the bad things that he's saying. We have to hold on to Catholic tradition regardless, okay? But again, I think they can become everybody as dogmatic and say, look, we're convinced he is the Pope, he has to be the Pope, and so you have to accept he's the Pope. If you don't accept the fact that he's the Pope, then you're anathema to us, and you're bad, and uh, even if you are faithful to Catholic tradition, you're denying the papacy by denying the Pope, and uh, so you, you are not really Catholics. <clears throat> and I would tell those people, look, <clears throat> if you look back in the Church's history, there have been Popes who have been called into questions reasonably uh, for doing much less than these men have been done. Okay, um, These men have attacked the very foundations of the faith. 
that in its practice, uh, practice of the faith in the Mass and the sacraments, they changed all of that. There have been worthy churchmen who have uh, said that if someone were to try to change the Mass and all the sacramental rites of the church, that Pope would be a schismatic, cut off from the church by the fact that he tried to do that. There, there have been a, uh, theological opinions that have been accepted by the church as perfectly Catholic, never condemned, that if men were to do these things, they would be suspect of heresy and their papacy would be called into question. And um, so it is not up to these dogmatic uh, sede plenis or, or sede occupatis or whatever you want to call them, who say that, yes, you cannot question the fact that Francis is a true pope, you cannot question that John Paul II is a true pope and so on. Uh, I would say to them the same thing I would say to the dogmatic Sede Vicantis, you know. You uh, do not have the right to override the Church's traditional teaching in this matter, uh, that she has uh, let Catholics know that they have a right to question certain things. She set the example in the way she's judged, let's say Honorius I, in excommunicating him even subsequent to his death for failing to uphold the Church and favoring heresy. Uh, when the Church has set us this example, and we also have the writings of uh, such Catholic luminaries, theologians and doctors of the Church, who have expressed the, the theological position that one can question the, the, the papacy of a, of a man who does such things, <clears throat> you cannot deny us that right to do so. <clears throat> and anathematize us, <clears throat> because you're going contrary to Catholic tradition yourself, and cutting off that... that, that um, that possibility to us when the church herself has said, yes, this, is, this can be a Catholic position. So um, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I would say that the very least we can say safely is this, that these men have given scandal to the whole world, especially to the Catholic souls in the world. They've scandalized them. And uh, they have given a, a very good um, objective reason to doubt whether or not they have the faith and whether they belong to the church and whether they can be the popes. Okay? Uh, there are some very serious questions that beg to be answered, okay, that, uh, that certainly would raise that question. For example, can one be the head of a new order of religion? and the head of the Catholic, the traditional Catholic faith at the same time. Is it possible if we see that these things really are two different religions, and we, we don't go into this hermeneutic continuity, which is just a little sleight of hand that was dreamed up by, I guess, Cardinal Ratzinger and, uh, and uh, Benedict XVI, to try to find a way to reconcile the two so that somehow the Novus Ordo is uh, one with the traditional, and that there's a continuum between them. There isn't, okay? The one is a rejection of the other. There's no doubt about it, okay? Modernism and Catholicism are antithetical. They're mutually opposed. There can be no reconciliation between them. Um, not in theory and not in practice in the Novus Ordo. Um, so, I mean, those are very serious questions um, that need to be faced and can't be dismissed. And brushed aside. So I think that as much as we can do, but as much as we need to do, is to say, look, there's an objective doubt as to whether or not these uh, men of the Novus Ordo are popes. There's an objective doubt as to whether they have the, faith, the Catholic faith or not. And uh, because of that, that makes the authority, any authority they have, doubtful. It makes any decree they have doubtful have a doubtful uh, in its binding nature, because a reflex principle of the Church, as I mentioned before, of a Catholic morality is, if a, a doubtful law does not bind anybody in conscience, and a, the law is doubtful if the authority behind the law is doubtful, because that's the only thing that could make it binding. And uh, so if you recognize, quite simply, that the authority there is doubtful, that is speaking, that these laws of the Novus Ordo are simply that. They're illusory. They don't have any binding force. We do not have to follow these things. We should not feel compelled to do so. 
All the more reason because they are so contrary to, to what the church is, has uh, taught us in the past continually throughout all of her, all of her uh, uh, centuries of life. And uh, we know where our conscience, our Catholic conscience is bound to follow Catholic tradition. So we have a clear obligation to follow Catholic tradition, regardless of what is coming out of the Vatican right now. Um, all of which is suspect, at best. So that's what, that's what the Catholic people should do. And they can do so with an absolutely clear conscience. Well, the question I'm going to, going to finish uh, with us tonight is, um, is I'm going to summarize uh, uh, one of our readers. He has several questions about Sedevacantism. And I think if um, I kind of summarize his question, it can answer all of these because they have to do with uh, whether or not um, you believe that uh, a, a priest needs to be a set of a contest uh, in order to um, validly give sacraments and etc. So uh, basically, the question is this: um, If a priest is validly ordained. Um, do they have to be a set of a contest in order to say a valid mass, consecrate the uh, bread and wine um, in a post-Vatican II mass? Obviously, we're, we're talking about a traditional mass here, um, and etc. Uh, what, what, what is your position on that? Because that's basically what our reader is asking. Well, the answer is no. Of his questions. Okay. Pure and simple, no. The priest be validly ordained and he performs the sacramental rite with the proper intention, he does not have to be a city of the contest. Um, categorically, no. To, to validly uh, administer the sacraments. No. Okay. Um, not only validly, but licitly also. He does not have to be a city of the contest. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that does a nice job and answers some uh, few readers' questions about, about that topic because they're wondering if a priest needed to be set of a contest uh, mm -hmm. uh, or, or not if they were validly ordained. So I think that, that that's very good. And uh, Father, I greatly appreciate um, all the insight that you, you've given tonight. Um, I know that it has helped me understand uh, a lot more about uh, these rather difficult questions, and I, and I hope it's mm -hmm. done the same for our viewers. Well, I hope so, Jim. Thank you. I mean, they're good, relevant uh, right to the hard questions. I know they concern a lot of people right now, and I, I would hope to clarify things and not uh, obscure things. So, uh, you know, your questioning can help that, you know, because if you see that there are things that are left unclear, have to, you know, pursue it until you get clarification. Bishop Mendez is a prime example of well, this case. You know, Bishop Mendez. Uh, just held on to the traditional phase, the traditional mass, traditional sacraments. And uh, that doesn't mean that he didn't uh, say the Novus Ordo uh, at, at some point in his life, you know, because a lot of the, the priests did accept the changes in the Novus Ordo up to a certain point, you know. A lot, of the bishop, a lot of the traditional priests did, you know. And then when they saw where it was leading, uh, and each one got to a certain point when he saw where it was going, like Father Fenton, and he, he said no, and he went back to the traditional. Uh, because it wasn't all that obvious at first where they were going with this, you know. Um, but um, Bishop Mendez uh, clung to the traditional mass, um, and he um, he saw a copy of the Ottaviani intervention one day when he was visiting us, and he picked it up and he was reading it, and I was su really surprised when he said, "This is really good." He said, uh, where did you get this? And here it was, you know, the, the Ottaviani intervention, the, this, this scathing critique of the new mass <clears throat> that came out from Cardinal Ottaviani and 40 leading Roman theologians of the pontifical universities in Rome gave this, this, this theological assessment of the new mass and called it, well, they, they read it. I mean, they said it was awful that it will cause a crisis of conscience to the Catholic people. It has no intention of, of, of representing the, the Catholic faith. Uh, I could not exaggerate what they said because it was so powerful against the new mass. And um, now here we were 20 years later, um, and 
uh, Bishop Mendes is apparently reading this for the first time. His instincts were right in seeing problems with the new Mass and gravitating back to the traditional Mass. But the theological arguments behind it, when he picked up the Ottavian Intervention, it was as though he was, he was actually seeing the theological arguments against it almost for the first time uh, to ratify what he just instinctively felt with the Cessus Catholicos, this Catholic sense, that there's something wrong with this. And, and I was amazed by that. It made me realize, you know, there are a lot of Catholic people out here who are very uneasy about the, the new Mass, but they don't really necessarily know why. Uh, Bishop Mendes had an advantage because of his theological training, backing up his Catholic sense. Um, but how many of them today could even pick up the Ottavian intervention, read it and understand it? You know, they'd have to have it explained to them. But yes, there were these cardinals and bishops and theologians who protested against the new mass and, and condemned the new mass back then. Uh, predicting everything we've seen happen to the church because of that new mass. And they did this back in 1969. So uh, Bishop Mendez once said to me, with regard to uh, John Paul II, he said, you know, I really do have a serious doubts that he, that he really is a Catholic pope. But I feel as though I should give him the benefit of the doubt, at least in praying for him. And so uh, we could discuss that whole issue, you know, because of the principle Papa Dubius Papa Novus, that doubtful pope is not a pope in practice at all, you know. Again, for the same reason, because if he's doubtfully the pope, then the authority behind any command he gives is doubtful, and you're not obliged to, to follow a doubtful command like that. We didn't get into a big theological discussion of that with Bishop Mendez, but I thought it was very interesting to have him say, point blank, that he has serious doubts himself about the legitimacy of the papacy of John Paul II. But uh, without getting into the theological uh, ramifications of it, he just thought that he had to, as a Catholic, give him at least the benefit of the doubt in praying for him as such. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of good people out there who have their doubts, like Father Fenton himself. Uh, back in the 80s, he was against the Vicantism, saying we have to accept that he's a true pope, a bad pope, but a true pope. Ten years later, uh, or thereabouts, I don't know, uh, he was saying we cannot say he's a pope, we have to accept the fact that he's not the pope. And when I saw Father Fenton down in Colorado, I said, well, Father Fenton, you know, you, you yourself uh, had a certain progress over these years, going from one way to another way. And there are still people who are in that process of sorting these things out. So we can't anathematize them any more than we would have expected others to anathematize us when we were trying to think this thing through. Um, we can't say, okay, now I figured it out, so anybody who doesn't agree with me now is anathema, <laughs> you know, since I finally come to that conclusion. Um, so I'm just saying that uh, what we do know is this, regardless of where we stand on that issue, the right thing to do is to follow Catholic tradition and not deviate from that Catholic tradition. Because if we're following Catholic tradition, we are following the leadership of the Holy Ghost, whom Christ our Lord sent to keep us on the right track and to keep us faithful to the church that he established. If we deviate from that Catholic tradition, for whatever reason, all right, because it's, it's convenient or because the Vatican tells us to, either way, we're wrong. We're off the track and we're straying from the true faith. We're straying from the true church. We're straying from our Lord. Well, Father, I thank you very much for your insight tonight, and you uh, maybe unwittingly actually answered another reader's question, or maybe I should say Bishop Mendez did, because the uh, reader's question was about whether or not a Catholic's first obligation to others, and in this case to a Pope, or Pope Francis, or uh, is to pray to them, and what, and what your understanding is. To pray for them. To pray for them, correct, yes. <laughs> no, no, so you have to pray for them, and... Uh, I think Bishop Mendez answered that very nicely. He said, even though I believe that he may be doubtful, I need to pray for him. Uh, well, I pray for Francis. I pray for his conversion. Mm -hmm. I pray for his conversion because if he will convert back to the, it, well, to the true faith if he ever had it, I don't know what 
Trini even had. He talks so many times about the fact as though he never really was a Catholic, as though he wasn't even brought up Catholic. Some of the things he said are so completely off the wall that you wonder what catechism training he even had. Um, so, uh, but I pray for his conversion because not only of his soul, but for all those other souls who are blindly following him. Uh, in charity, uh, I, I, don't, I, I have no choice but to pray for his conversion. I pray for his conversion and pray that God will give him such a strong true faith that he'll even give his life as a martyr for the true traditional faith and for the sake of all the souls who still look to him to be the Il Papa, you know, to be the Holy Father. Um, so, you know, as far as how those prayers are answered, well, that I have to leave to God, but I'll still offer the prayers. Um, and not only did you offer prayers for Pope Francis, but um, you also offer prayers for our uh, supporters of what Catholics believe. as I do. Mass has said mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. the supporters, and uh, we thank uh, you for that. Oh, um, well. And uh, thank you for your insights tonight. We thank you, uh, our viewers and our supporters. Um, if you have any... Uh, questions about where to find a mass center or would like to order any of the books or materials that uh, we've talked about on the show, you can uh, please feel free to send an email. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you can also send an email uh, to us and we can get back to you with any information about mass centers, uh, where the traditional mass, Latin mass is said, um, and any other questions that you may have. We greatly appreciate all of the uh, input that you've given to us, uh, the very nice things that you've said about the show as well as your questions, and we hope to continue answering your questions in future shows. We ask you to remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to pray, make sacrifice, and to consecrate yourselves to the Immaculate Heart. Thank you.